Chapter Seventeen of the Lion's Skin by Raphael Sabatini. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Amid the Graves. What time Sir Richard had been dying in the inner room, Mr. Green and two of his acolytes had improved the occasion by making a thorough search in Sir Richard's writing table and a thorough investigation of every scrap of paper found there from which you will understand how much mr green was a gentleman who set business above every other consideration the man who had shot sir richard had been ordered by mr green to take himself off and had been urged to go down on his knees for once in a way and pray heaven that his rashness might not bring him to the gallows as he so richly deserved his fourth myrmidon mr green had dispatched with a note to my lord rotherby and it was entirely upon the answer he should receive that it must depend whether he proceeded or not forthwith to the apprehension of mr carroll meanwhile the search went on amain and was extended presently to the very bedroom where the dead sir richard lay every nook and cranny was ransacked the very mattress under the dead man was removed and investigated and even mr carroll and bentley had to submit to being searched but it all proved fruitless not a line of treasonable matter was to be found anywhere to the certificates upon mr carroll the searcher made the mistake of paying but little heed in view of their nature but if there were no proofs of plots and treasonable dealings there was at least abundant proof of sir richard's identity and mr green appropriated these against any awkward inquiries touching the manner in which the baronet had met his death of such inquiries however there were none it was formally sworn to lord carteret by green and his men that the secretary's messenger jerry the fellow owned no surname had shot sir richard in self-defence when sir richard had produced firearms upon being arrested on a charge of high treason for which they held the secretary's own warrant at first lord carteret considered it a thousand pities that they should not have contrived matters better so as to take sir richard alive but upon reflection he was careful not to exaggerate to himself the loss occasioned by his death for sir richard after all was a notoriously stubborn man not in the least likely to have made any avowals worth having so that his trial whilst probably resulting sterile of such results as the government could desire would have given publicity to the matter of a plot that was hatching and such publicity at a time of so much unrest was the last thing the government desired where jacobitism was concerned lord carteret had the wise discretion to proceed with the extremest caution publicity might serve to fan the smouldering embers into a blaze whereas it was his cunning aim quietly to stifle them as he came upon them so upon the whole he was by no means sure but that jerry had done the state the best possible service in disposing thus summarily of that notorious jacobite agent sir richard everard and his lordship saw to it that there was no inquiry and that nothing further was heard of the matter as for lord rotherby had the affair transpired twenty-four hours earlier 
he would certainly have returned mr green a message to effect the arrest of mr carroll upon suspicion but as it chanced he had that very afternoon received a visit from his mother who came in great excitement to inform him that she had forced from lord ostermore an acknowledgment that he was plotting with mr carroll to go over to king james so before they could move further against mr carroll it behooved them to ascertain precisely to what extent lord ostermore might not be incriminated as otherwise the arrest of carroll might lead to exposures that would ruin the earl more thoroughly than could any south sea bubble revelations thus her ladyship to her son he turned upon her my madam said he these be the very arguments i used other day when we talked of this and all you answered me then was to call me a dull-witted clod for not seeing how the thing might be done without involving my lord cha snapped her ladyship beating her knuckles impatiently with her fan a dull-witted clod did i call you twas flattery sheer flattery for i think you're something worse fool can ye not see the difference that lies betwixt your disclosing a plot to the secretary of state and causing this carol to disclose it as might happen if he were seized first discover the plot find out in what it may consist and then go to lord carteret to make your terms he looked at her out of temper by her rebuke i may be as dull as your ladyship says but i do not see in what the position now is different from what it was it isn't different but we thought it was different she explained impatiently we assumed that your father would not have betrayed himself counting upon his characteristic caution but it seems we are mistook he has betrayed himself to carol and before we can move in this matter we must have proofs of a plot to lay before the secretary of state lord rotherby understood and accounted himself between scylla and charybdis and when that evening green's messenger found him he gnashed his teeth in rage at having to allow this chance to pass at being forced to temporize until he should be less parlously situated he returned mr green an urgent message to take no steps concerning mr carroll until they should have concerted together mr green was relieved mr carroll arrested might stir up matters against the slayer of sir richard and this was a business which mr green had prevision enough to see his master lord carteret would prefer should not be stirred up he had a notion for the rest that if mr carroll were left to go his ways he would not be likely to give trouble touching that same matter and he was right in this before his overwhelming sense of loss mr carroll had few thoughts to bestow upon the manner in which that loss had been sustained moreover if he had a quarrel with any one on that account it was with the government whose representative had issued a warrant for sir richard's arrest and no more with the wretched tipstaff who had fired the pistol 
than with the pistol itself both alike were but instruments of slightly different degrees of insensibility for twenty-four hours mr carroll's grief was overwhelming in its poignancy his sense of solitude was awful gone was the only living man who had stood to him for kith and kin he was left alone in the world utterly alone that was the selfishness of his sorrow the consideration of sir richard's death as it concerned himself presently an alloy of consolation was supplied by the reflection of sir richard's own case as sir richard himself had stated it upon his deathbed his life had not been happy it had been poisoned by a monomania which like a worm in a bud had consumed the sweetness of his existence sir richard was at rest and since he had been discovered that shot was indeed the most merciful end that could have been measured out to him the alternative might have been the gibbet and the gaping crowd and a moral torture to precede the end better a thousand times better as it was so much did all this weigh with him that when on the following monday he accompanied the body to its grave he found his erstwhile passionate grief succeeded by an odd thankfulness that things were as they were although it must be confessed that a pang of returning anguish smote him when he heard the earth clattering down upon the wooden box that held all that remained of the man who had been father mother brother and all else to him he turned away at last and was leaving the graveyard when someone touched him on the arm it was a timid touch he turned sharply and found himself looking into the sweet face of hortensia winthrop wondering how came she there she wore a long dark cloak and hood but her veil was turned back a chair was waiting not fifty paces from them along the churchyard wall i came but to tell you how much i feel for you in this great loss she said he looked at her in amazement how did you know he asked her i guessed said she i heard that you were with him at the end and i caught stray words from her ladyship of what had passed lord rotherby had the information from the tipstaff who went to arrest sir richard everard i guessed he was your your foster father as you called him and i came to tell you how deeply i sorrow for you in your sorrow he caught her hands in his and bore them to his lips reckless of who might see the act ah this is sweet and kind in you said he she drew him back into the churchyard again along the wall there was an avenue of limes a cool and pleasant walk wherein idlers lounged on sundays in summer after service thither she drew him he went almost mechanically her sympathy stirred his sorrow again as sympathy so often does i have buried my heart yonder i think said he with a wave of his hand towards that spot amid the graves where the men were toiling with their shovels he was the only living being that loved me ah oh, surely not said she 
sorrow rather than reproach in her gentle voice indeed yes mine is a selfish grief it is for myself that i sorrow for myself and my own loneliness it is thus with all of us when we argue that we weep the dead it would be more true to say that we bewail the living for him it is better as it is no doubt it is better so for most men when all is said and we do wrong to weep their passing do not talk so she said it hurts ay it is the way of truth to hurt which is why hating pain we shun truth so often he sighed but oh it was good in you to seek me to bring me word with your own lips of your sweet sympathy if aught could lighten the gloom of my sorrow surely it is that they stepped along in silence until they came to the end of the avenue and turned it was no idle silence the silence of two beings who have naught to say it was a grave portentous silence occasioned by the unutterable much in the mind of one and by the other's apprehension of it at last she spoke to ask him what he meant to do i shall return to france he said it had perhaps been better had i never crossed to england i cannot think so she said simply frankly and with no touch of a coquetry that had been harshly at discord with time and place he shot her a swift sidelong glance then stopped and turned i am glad on it said he twill make my going the easier i mean not that she cried and held out her hands to him i meant not what you think you know you know what was i meant you know you must what impulse brought me to you in this hour when i knew you must need comfort and in return how cruel were you not to tell me that yonder lay buried the only living being that that loved you his fingers were clenched upon her arm don't don't he implored hoarsely a strange fire in his eyes a hectic flush on either cheek don't or i'll forget what i am and take advantage of this midsummer folly that is upon you is it no more than folly justin she asked him brown eyes looking up into grey-green ay something more stark madness all great emotions are it will pass and you will be thankful that i was man enough strong enough to allow it the chance of passing she hung her head shaking it sorrowfully then very softly is it no more than the matter of of that that stands between us she inquired no more than that he answered and yet more than enough i have no name to offer any woman a name she echoed scornfully what store do you think i lay by that when you talk so you obey some foolish prejudice no more obedience to prejudices is the whole art of living he answered sighing she made a gesture of impatience and went on 
Justin, you said you loved me, and when you said so much you gave me the right, or so I understood it, to speak to you as I am doing now. You are alone in the world without kith or kin, the only one you had, the one who represented all for you, lies buried there. Would you return thus, lonely and alone, to France? Ah, now I understand, he cried. Now I understand. Pity is the impulse that has urged you. Pity for my loneliness, is it not, Hortensia? I'll not deny that without the pity there might not have been the courage. Why should I, since it is a pity that gives you no offense, a pity that is rooted firmly in, in love for you, my Justin? He set his hands upon her shoulders, and with glowing eyes regarded her. Ah, oh, sweet, said he, you make me very, very proud. And then his arms dropped again limply to his sides. He sighed and shook his head drearily. And yet, reflect, when I come to beg your hand in marriage of your guardian, what shall I answer him of the questions he will ask me of myself, touching my family, my parentage, and all the rest that he will crave to know? She observed that he was very white again. Need you enter into that? A man is himself, not his father or his family. And then she checked. You make me plead too much, she said, a crimson flood in her fair cheeks. I'll say no more than I have said. Already have I said more than I intended. And you have wanted mercy that you could drive me to it. You know my mind, my my inmost heart you know that i care nothing for your namelessness it is yours to decide what you will do come now my chair is staying for me he bowed he sought again to convey some sense of his appreciation of her great nobility then led her through the gate and to her waiting chair whatever i may decide hortensia was the last thing he said to her and I shall decide as I account best for you rather than for myself. And for myself there needs no thought or hesitation. Whatever I may decide, believe me when I say from my soul that all my life shall be the sweeter for this hour. End of chapter 17